Good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you and many more and many more and many more. All right. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host today, Shante Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. We had to take a station break for the last couple of days because I had some things to take care of at my home that could not wait. So I thank you for your patience. We are back in the book Carved in Ebony by Jasmine L. Holmes. This is Theology Thinking Thursday. And here is the title of the book. The interesting thing about reading about all of these women is showing the significant ways in which they impacted the American landscape by what they believed, by their convictions, um, by their willingness to teach, by their willingness to get into the trenches, and by their willingness to not just separate their faith out from what was happening in civic life. And I think we can all learn from that um, ways to be more engaged in our communities, ways to be more engaged in civic life so that our faith is not just one of words, but that our faith is also one of deeds, right? Because we can be on the social media streets, you know, posturing and teaching and doing all these things. Um, but the real work some of the real work, I'll say it that way, because this can be definitely used as a tool, right? Some of the real work is going to be things that aren't filmed. It's going to be the places that you go that don't allow cameras. Um, it's going to be the places that you go that say, hey, no photographs here um, out of respect for people's privacy and people's right to privacy. I think that so many times, especially in this day and age, we've gotten so used to having almost a um, voyeuristic kind of look into the interior of, of people's lives. And I often say this, especially when, you know, I'm doing something that helps the underserved or I am, you know, doing something that is charitable, right? Charity is not necessary. It's not supposed to be done 
to get accolades from other people. It's not supposed to be done as a, hey, look at me, look at what I'm doing. I'm helping so many people. Charity really is supposed to be about helping the person. It's not supposed to be your um, marketing moment. Although, unfortunately, that's what charity has become in a lot of cases. And so even as you think about ways in which you're going to help your community, ways you're going to give back to your community, um, yes, we know for some things you do have to document for accountability purposes, for tax purposes, and things of that nature. But if you are solely helping other people to get something out of it, then you're really not helping them. It's really a marketing campaign for you. Um, yeah. And so we just have to be mindful about that. Um, when we're, when we are serving other people that we don't turn it into something about us, but that we actually keep the focus on the people that we're serving. I know lately I have been, uh, having to find a harmony between the work that I want to do and the work that I can currently do. <laughs> Because believe it or not, I get people messaging me all the time asking for help. And, you know, I can at this point, I'm doing what I can with what I have. Um, but it is donations. It is um, people supporting the work. It is uh, people buying my art. It is people buying my books. It is people buying my music that allows me to be more philanthropic right? So for me, a large part of my artistry, a large part of my creating has to do with taking those funds and redistributing it back out to people that need help. And so, you know, I found myself this week having to turn some people down because I don't have as much as I would like to have um, in donations to be able to help everybody. So that is the sad part, right, about having a heart that is really geared toward giving, but knowing that you need to increase the giving, if that makes sense. So if you would like to partner with us in the giving, because I am not a millionaire. <laughs> I know some people think I am, but I'm not. I'm not a millionaire. I'm a thousandaire, but I'm not a millionaire. Um, so if you would like to partner with us in giving, you can always um, give to our cash app, which is dollar sign life nation. You can always donate there and say, hey, thank you for teaching. Thank you for creating content, all of those kinds of things. If you want to be more formal and you want to join our We Dare squad, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues. Those are people that I count as my consistent, continual supporters of what we do on this platform, and they are monthly subscribers. So if you say, hey, I've been listening, I've been listening for months, I've been listening for years, and I want to get in on this. I want to get in on being able to help people, not just locally, but also around the world. I want to join your squad. It's patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues is where you can join. You can also um, go to my link tree, L-I-N-K, T, 
tr.ee forward slash Shante Charles. And there right at the top is a opportunity to give. And there's different increments that you can give in if you want to support the cause of what we're doing on a regular basis. So let's hop into our reading today. We're looking at Daughter of a Legacy, Charlotte Fortin Grimke. And we had just started reading her last week. And we're going to continue on to finish up her life today. Another educated homeschooler. Charlotte's own education began at home. Raised in Philadelphia's elite black community, she was privately educated. Like me, Charlotte was technically a homeschool graduate, but she far surpassed me, teaching herself French, German, and Latin while at home. She would go on to attend Salem Normal School for Teaching in 1856, becoming Salem's first black graduate and the first black woman to teach in white classrooms in the state of Massachusetts. As a black teacher who worked in predominantly white spaces for most of my 10 years of educational experience, I know that the bravery and poise Charlotte had to exhibit in her classrooms cannot be overstated, the writer says. Throughout my years of teaching in white classrooms, I had a host of awkward encounters from the innocuous what's on your head when I tried to, when I tied my hair in a scarf to the slightly more offensive, well, of course you care about racism. You're black. Why would I care as much as you care? One experience in particular stands out to me. Though I was an English major in recent years, my love for history has taken center stage in both my teaching and my writing endeavors. Anyone who teaches with me knows that I have a particular affinity for the Civil War and its innumerable causes. One day, another teacher was getting ready to have a class discussion about the Founding Fathers' attitudes towards slavery, and she came to me for some advice. I was poised to give her resources, but in a comedy of errors, I ended up standing in front of a class full of white kids, completely unprepared for the ensuing discussion. The fact that it appeared that the only black teacher on campus had been thrust in front of them to talk about slavery was awkward in and of itself, but the awkwardness was further exacerbated by what I perceived as a marked lack of empathy toward enslaved human beings on our soil. I went to my car and cried afterward, frustrated that I hadn't had time to gather source documents and rally my answers to statements like, no one knew slavery was wrong back then. Some slaves were just really happy living with their masters, and what were they even supposed to do if they got free? I called my husband and told him that standing there felt like defending my own humanity to a room full of apathetic teenagers. Questions that were innocuous to them felt very personal for me. I was able to redo the lecture with different results. Apologies were made, misunderstandings set to rights, miscommunications properly communicated. I survived. What I cannot begin to imagine is being a black teacher in the 1860s, teaching children whose only notions of black people were of a subservient caste in the society that they were blessed to occupy. In spite of the fact that Charlotte grew up in a privileged upper-class household, she was still a black woman living at a time when America was sharply divided in a system designed to subjugate its black residents to such a degree that their very citizenship was often questioned. Even in a progressive town like Salem, Charlotte's presence as a woman of color was a staggering statement. Much like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Charlotte Grimke was keenly aware of how tenuous freedom was for many other black people on American soil. 
On May 25, 1854, she wrote, did not intend to write this evening, but have just heard of something that is worth recording, something which must ever rouse in the mind of every true friend of liberty and humanity, feelings of the deepest indignation and sorrow. Another fugitive from bondage has been arrested, a poor man who for two short months has trod the soil and breathed the air of the old Bay State, was arrested like a criminal in the streets of her capital and is now kept strictly guarded. A double police force is required. The military are in readiness and all this done to prevent a man whom God has created in his own image from regaining that freedom which he in common with every human being is endowed. I can only hope and pray most earnestly that Boston will not again disgrace herself by sending him back to a bondage worse than death, or rather that she will redeem herself from the disgrace which his arrest alone has brought upon her. Charlotte's journal is in and of itself a marvel, kept from, night, from 1854 to 1892. It records her life from her perspective, the things that were important to her, the things that enraged her, the things that discouraged her, the things that gave her joy, the things that struck her passion, there is an intimacy in reading a journal that is quite unlike any other type of account. Even an autobiography is an edited account meant for public consumption. But a journal offers us a unique look into the personality of this dynamic woman. Charlotte was keenly aware of how tenuous freedom was for many other black people. The journal also attests to her thorough education. She read 100 books in a year as a teenager and she records her thoughts about many of the texts she read. The first entry in her diary is about Dickens' Hard Time, which I read around the same age. She quotes William Cowper, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and others. But not only is the journal a testament to Charlotte's thorough education, it is also a testament to her passionate distaste for slavery. Several entries mention her hope of emancipation, her disgust with pastors seeming approval of the institution, and her desire to be involved in anti-slavery work. She very closely follows the case of Anthony Burns, the runaway mentioned in the above entry, and expresses her intense disappointment in her country when he is sentenced back to slavery. Today, Massachusetts has again been disgraced. Again, she has showed her submission to the slave power, and oh, with what deep sorrow do we think of what will doubtless be the fate of that poor man when he is again consigned to the hours of slavery. With what scorn must that government be regarded, which cowardly assembles thousands of soldiers to satisfy the demands of slaveholders, to deprive of his freedom a man created in God's own image, whose sole offense is the color of his skin. And if resistance is offered to this outrage, these soldiers are to shoot down American citizens without mercy and this by express orders of a government which proudly boasts of being the freest in the world. This on the very soil where the revolution of 1776 began, in sight of the battlefield where thousands of brave men fought and died in opposing British tyranny, which was nothing compared to the, with the American oppression of today. So, just even her statement in and of itself, Hopefully that sets this record straight with some black Americans that black people in this time period just went along with slavery, that they didn't have any thought or any opinion about it, because that's often how it is laid out in American history books. It's laid out without black 
people's perspective of what was happening to other black people. You could almost lift some of the words she said here and place it right over the police force in America today. It would have the same effect. Like her grandfather before her, the young Charlotte saw the existence of slavery in the land of the free as an unforgivable contradiction. It was a contradiction. And people knew it. And people spoke about it. And people wrote about it. Teaching the Contraband of War. The law that led to the capture of Anthony Burns is the same law that would lead to Charlotte's future in South Carolina. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act became the latest in a string of compromises the federal government was making in order to appease the South's desire to keep slavery alive and well in the Union. As previously discussed, this law not only made it illegal for any Northerner to aid and abet runaway enslaved people, it also compelled Northerners who knew about fugitive slaves, enslaved people, to work with slaveholders for their return. We've seen Francis Ellen Watkins Harper and others respond to the implications of this legislation. After the Civil War began, though, the Fugitive Slave Act presented a bit of conundrum for Union troops. Enslaved people who lived near enough to Union camps were breaking free and going to these camps for sanctuary. Under the Fugitive Slave Act, the Union soldiers were potentially breaking federal law by allowing the formerly enslaved to stay. However, as the South was in rebellion, they did not want to facilitate returning the Southern labor force, and so the seeds of contraband camps were born. At the start of the war, the Union had no policy to deal with the African-Americans seeking protection. Individual commanders made their own decisions. Some commanders put them to work for Union troops, while others returned them to plantation owners. So the whole romanticizing that, oh, all of the Union soldiers were for us. No, 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 no. <laughs> At Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, Union Major General Benjamin Butler refused to send three fugitives back into the bonds of slavery. He classified the escaped slaves as contrabands of war. This term meant that once the fleeing slaves crossed Union Army lines, they were classified as property of the Union Army. All enemy property that fell into Union hands constituted contraband and would not be returned. Because of Butler's actions, a federal policy was instituted on August 6, 1861. Fugitive slaves were declared to be contraband of war if their labor had been used to aid the Confederacy in any way. If found to be contraband, they were declared free. So there is a group of um, people that call themselves the contraband descendants or descendants of contraband. General Butler was not an abolitionist and had in fact voted for Jefferson Davis in the past. However, he knew that withholding the runaways was a smart tactical move. It removed responsibility from the Union soldiers to abide by the Fugitive Slave Act because the Southern States Rebellion made that act null and void. Further, it played off the Southern laws that dehumanized enslaved people by treating them as property. 
Now that property was considered the spoils of war. And so contraband camps began to crop up all over the Union-occupied South, particularly in Georgia and South Carolina. Black teachers began making their way south to aid in the camps, setting up schools for the formerly enslaved. These camps became the first experience of American citizenship for many a black refugee from the South. And women like Mary S. Peake were there to welcome them and to strive to aid the transition. In 1861, Charlotte Fortin was recruited by the federal government to teach emancipated slaves on the sea islands of South Carolina. The area had been abandoned by many white plantation owners when the Union arrived, leaving behind scores of newly freed black people. The Sea Islands weren't a contraband camp in the sense that the freed people there were not runaways, but served a similar purpose. Charlotte the Folklorist. The culture of the Sea Islands was different from any place Charlotte had ever experienced. Many plantation owners allowed their enslaved laborers to live on the islands while they themselves lived on the mainland to avoid diseases common in the area. As the majority of people who actually inhabited the area were black and largely self-sustaining, Charlotte was stepping into an entirely new culture. The culture shock was real. Often discouraged by the language barrier between herself and her stu students, the Sea Islands had their own dialect, Gullah Geechee, and the customs that were completely foreign to her. Charlotte also battled with health issues there that would follow her for the rest of her life. Yet even as she struggled to serve the inhabitants of the islands well, she played an important part in capturing their culture and history for the rest of the watching country, becoming the very first folklorist to do so. She would share her observations in May 1864 edition of the Atlantic Monthly. Her narrative would bring attention to the thousands of newly freed black people whose stories might not otherwise have been told. Many of the grown people are desirous of learning to read. It is wonderful how a people have been so long crushed to the earth, so imbruted as these have been, and they are said to be among the most degraded Negroes of the South, can have so great a desire for knowledge and such a capability for attaining it. One cannot believe that the haughty Anglo-Saxon race, after centuries of such an experience as these people have had, would be very much superior to them. And one's indignation increases against those who, North as well as South, taunt the colored race with inferiority, while they themselves use every means in their power to crush and degrade them, denying them every right and privilege, clothing against them every avenue of elevation and improvement. Were they, under such circumstances, intellectual and refined, they would certainly be vastly superior to any other race that ever existed. She especially enjoyed sharing their hymns. Go down in the lonesome valley, my brother, you want to get religion. Go down in the lonesome valley. Go down in the lonesome valley. Go down in the lonesome valley, my Lord. Go down in the lonesome valley to meet my Jesus there. Oh, feed on milk and honey. Oh, feed on milk and honey, my Lord. Oh, feed on milk and honey. Meet my Jesus there. Oh, John, he brought a letter. Oh, John, he brought a letter, my Lord. Oh, Mary and Martha, read them. Meet my Jesus there. Go down in the lonesome valley. She painted a picture of a principled, deeply spiritual people whom she was blessed to serve, in spite of the culture shock she often experienced in their service. In Charlotte's diary, we have a unique account of the day-to-day -day trials 
and triumphs of ministering in another culture. The picture painted isn't always a rosy one. At times, the reader may recoil from the apparent pride with which she held her customs in comparison to the customs of the people she was serving. But the theme Charlotte returned to was the dignity of the formerly enslaved people whom she taught. She spoke with devotion of mothers who came to her class with babies on their hips, ready to finally learn how to read English. Let's be clear, because they had their own language of grandmothers who sat learning next to their grandchildren. She spoke of their deep spiritual convictions and their church traditions. She spoke of her calling to serve, not just as teacher for reading, writing, and arithmetic, but for Sunday school and hymn singing as well. Charlotte poured herself into the inhabitants of the Sea Islands, even when her own health limitations got in the way. Charlotte would spend her life trying to right the wrong she witnessed as a young girl. Mrs. Charlotte Fortin Grimke. Charlotte Fortin would not become Charlotte Fortin Grimke for several more years. After leaving the Sea Island, she continued to teach first in Boston again and later in D.C. At 41, she would marry Presbyterian minister Francis Grimke, who had an impressive pedigree of his own. He was the nephew of the famed abolitionist Grimke sisters. Francis was the son of a slaveholder and an enslaved woman and his aunts would help him to get an education, first at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. Francis would go from Lincoln to Howard, where he studied law, until he felt that God was calling him to ministry. He would graduate from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1878. The Grimskys would have one child together, but that child would die in infancy. Charlotte and Francis devoted the rest of their lives to the spreading of the gospel and the reconciliatory love of Christ. Charlotte married a man whose boldness in the cause of justice matched every bit of the boldness in her pedigree. She married a man whose love for the bride of Christ matched and exceeded that boldness. In advice to fellow preachers that still rings true today, Reverend Grimke said, quote, Help us, O Lord, more and more as thy servants, to realize that in and of ourselves we can do nothing. We are only instruments in thy hand, and our effectiveness as instruments depends entirely upon whether or not the Spirit uses us. From beginning to end, all effective work is due to the presence and power of the Spirit in the preacher and in the people to whom he speaks. The more fully we understand this and the more fully after we have made the most careful preparation, we depend upon the Spirit in all that we do or attempt to do, the more certain we may be of results. It is in this spirit-led humility that the Grimkeys continued their service to the body of Christ throughout the rest of their lives. Charlotte would continue to write, publishing some of her poems later in life. She would go on to help found the National Association of Colored Women. She and Frances would serve D.C.'s 15th Street Presbyterian Church. By the time Charlotte died in 1914, she had lived a life full of advocacy for others. So let's talk really briefly as we close the reading today about a legacy that lives on. As I've written this book, the writer says, I have pondered the unique legacies of these 10 women. Of the 10 of them, only a couple had children who survived infancy and only some had husbands they were blessed to be married to for the most of their lives. They are widows, single women who never married or mothers who buried their children far too soon. And in this way, it can be difficult to see a lasting legacy especially in the sense of the Fortin family dynasty 
from which Charlotte hailed. I grew up being taught a message of multi-generational faithfulness that prizes family legacy and family line. At this writing, I've given birth to not one but two sons who will carry my family name. I hope they do it with half as much dignity as the Fortin clan did. We have a Bible chock full of genealogies that show us the importance of family lines, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, the Bible is full of genealogies, and yes, those family lines are incredibly important. But they aren't important because flesh and blood legacy reign supreme. They are important because Christ reigns supreme. Following the seed of the woman from Eve all the way down to Mary isn't an exercise in genetic purity or family fame, but rather an exercise in faithfulness. God promised in the very beginning that he would send his son to take on the sins of the world, and he kept that promise through generations of childbearing that culminated in the bearing of the Son of God. He then, the Son of God, turned to his disciples and reminded them that the most important thing we have to give the world isn't our temporal family legacy, but our eternal one. In fact, he told the disciples that if their family didn't understand their commitment to him, if family stood in the way of obedience, then family needed to be forsaken. This understanding offers us a radical departure from a culture that used to prize sons over daughters because of the preservation of a family name. We have a family name that is above every other name in the person and work of Christ. The Fortins were an amazing family. God used them in truly phenomenal ways. He gave them a legacy that any inheritor could be proud of. Yet that legacy did not end with Charlotte any more than it ended with the never married Margareta. That legacy doesn't just belong to the Fortins, but to anyone who proclaims Christ and obeys him, even when it is not politically or socially expedient to do so. This book boasts of mothers who never bore children, of members of the Bride of Christ who never wore wedding rings, of family legacies written not in genealogies, but in the history of the faithful God they serve. And while an entirely new book could be written about the women who served God in traditional family structures where they married young and raised the passel of children, these 10 women offer us a less heard story of feminine strength and courage. I do not have a family tree that looks like the Fortins, but I know what it is to be raised by faithful parents. I know what it is to become an adult and grapple with what faithfulness looks like for me and my children. But even if my sons never marry or never bear another home, the legacy I hope to leave them isn't just about our greatness, our obedience, our excellence, but rather the name in the same God whom Charlotte and Francis served. That is the family legacy that will last. So, pretty powerful words. There is, uh, she does have one more chapter that we will tackle on next week um, about Sarah Maps Douglas. And then she's going to talk about the women that she left out. And we'll be done with this reading. All right, I'm going to open it up for some conversation. A lot was said in that. A lot was said in that. But my main takeaways, believe it or not, was writing and the power of writing and being mindful that even your interior thoughts, if you are journaling or if you are writing, 
could someday fall up into the hands of somebody who is doing some research on you, doing some research on your time period to know what was the average citizen thinking? What was the average citizen doing? And uh, if you are in the practice of writing or if you're in the practice of journaling, consider that your words could be more important than you think they are even in this moment. If you would like to respond to today's reading, I don't know why I'm yawning. <laughs> if you would like to respond to today's reading, uh, feel free to hop on the camera and let's chat a little bit. If you are listening by podcast, I want to thank you for your time and your attention. We will be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with our Friday, Get Free Friday. All right, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we are going to be doing some things to help you with your mental health. We'll be um, showing you some practices and some exercises this month that you can do to assist you with your mental health. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Take care, be well, and God bless.